If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. The Speech Uncensored podcast is diving into dysphagia documentation today with my fantastic guest, Kelsey Day. When Kelsey started posting examples of her documentation on Instagram, I was like, jackpot, here is an SLP who has it figured out. I've been struggling in my own practice in providing consistent, thorough, yet succinct dysphagia documentation. I'm always looking to make my documentation more value-laden for the doctors and other clinical staff participating in the patient's care. And Kelsey's examples that she shared were exactly what I wanted my documentation to be. So here is part one of Kelsey's guide to improving our dysphagia documentation. And we're starting with the clinical swallow evaluation report. All right. Hello, Kelsey Day. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm so good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really delighted to have you and that you're talking on our topic today. So we're going to talk about dysphagia documentation, which I think might bore some people to death, generally speaking, but I hope I can make it exciting and fun and something that people are excited to start doing. Okay. Okay. Good. Awesome. I'm really excited. Like I love documentation. I love reading everyone's documentation. Like not just, you know, what I write, what other people write, but like nurses, doctors, consults, like everybody's notes, I feel like can be so enlightening. So I love it. Like I love documentation and I'm really nerdy excited about this because I know I want mine to be better. I want it to be very clear, like what happened, what the plan is and you know, what's the benefit of us seeing patients. So. Right. Absolutely. I mean, documentation is so important overall because it just communicates our impressions, our diagnoses, and all of our recommendations to the medical team. And if that's not clear, then there's very little room to go from there. If the medical team can't understand what your plan is, um, and if you can't interpret your own notes and understand what your own plan is and where to go from there. So yeah, I think it's really important. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. Um, so how did you develop and hone your report writing skills? Um, because you've done an amazing job of sharing your write-ups on social media to kind of show, like, give us like, you know, a case example and then how you documented what you did. And I remember like reading the first ones and like my eyes just getting like big as saucers and being like, this is it. This is the ticket. It is so clear what she did, how she did it and what the next steps are. And it was more than that. Like you were taking um, the whole view of the patient, everything that was going on with the patient and not just, oh, well, their nurse said that they're not swallowing their pills really well. So here's, I just stayed within the swallowing. It was like, what's all going on with this patient that may be resulting in those symptoms? And that is, it's so enlightening. And yeah, I like, I know I don't do that in my documentation yet. So teach me, Kelsey, teach me. everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, absolutely. I think we are all taught. We all have some clinical writing course in graduate school that tells you this is how you write a report, but at least my personal experience, that report writing that I was taught was very limited to staying just within the patient swallowing within that session. And it felt like just a checklist of coughs and of throat clears and of, you know, was that a runny nose? Do people even do that anymore? Yeah. So it just was so constrained. And I realized I'm writing these notes and no one cares. The nurses don't care. The doctors don't care. If they open my note and they see the patient cough five times and then they throat cleared once and then their eyes looked really red, they don't care. So we need to interpret that information. We're skilled providers. We need to 
take data that we obtain and then we need to do the work for them. We need to interpret it and then package it up very nicely for them, something that's very clear and easy to read that contributes new valuable information to the team. And, you know, that's not something we're taught to do at all. And I'm not aware of any resource out there that can teach you how to do that. So personally, I've spent, you know, seven years of acute care practice working on it constantly and just reading other physician notes, reading our physical and occupational therapy colleagues notes um, and learning from them, just looking at it saying, what about this note is valuable to me? What about this note is objective? What contributes new information to the medical team? What makes you read it and think, thank you for your skilled service here. Um, So that's something that I've just been like evaluating over years and trying to incorporate and slowly change. And, you know, my process is still changing a lot daily. Like I even read my notes from a month ago and go, wow, what was I thinking? So I think we can all just continue to grow. But yeah, I I don't know of anything out there right now that teaches you how to do it. So that's why I want help. Awesome. And then I got so excited for our topic. (laughs) Totally skipped over. Like, tell me about you, Kelsey. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you? Like, oh my gosh, I was just like, information, knowledge, deliver. Okay, so I I apologize. (laughs) No, no worries. Tell me about you. So I obviously am a speech pathologist in the acute care setting. Like I said, I've been practicing for seven years. Um, I was trained at Northwestern University. I was very lucky to have Dr. Gerilyn Logeman as my dysphagia professor. So I think she gave me a really good foundation to start with. Um, And then from there, I did a medical CFY in acute care and have been in acute care for My whole career, I really specialize in intensive care, critically ill patients, multi-trauma patients, especially patients with tracheostomy and ventilator dependency. And um, I launched the FEES program at my hospital several years ago, maybe three years ago now. Um, It's been really successful and we've gotten, you know, really good early intervention for mechanically ventilated patients. So that's kind of my passion. That's awesome. I love that. Um, In interviewing other SLPs who work heavily in the ICU unit, I feel like in line with you is that they're they're not looking at just the dysphagia as a single symptom. They're looking at the bigger picture and they're seeing everything that's going on. So I feel like that's uh, an area where it's crucial. Like you can't get away with just walking in, only treating dysphagia and leaving. Like you need to everything that's contributing and affecting that patient. Otherwise you won't be successful. So I'm wondering, like, I'm thinking that might be a theme. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, you know, the higher the level of acuity, the bigger the impact of so many other factors that are going on with the patient, like their pain and their positioning and just their overall work of breathing and the types of respiratory support they're getting There's in the medications that they're receiving. There are so many different factors. So as you kind of move up the acuity level, when you're treating dysphagia, you need, I think, an increasing level of understanding of just medicine in general. And I think, you know, one area our field is really lacking is just basic medical knowledge. Um, And, you know, once you graduate, the work really starts on understanding medicine because dysphagia is such a complex disease that has so many different possible etiologies that you cannot just, you, you need to understand all of medicine to understand dysphagia. Yeah, that's a bold statement, Kelsey. I like it. I like bold people. (laughs) (laughs) Say it again for the people who are like just now perking up and like, wait, what? I tuned out. Like, go for it. (laughs) Yeah, we need to know medicine. And I think, you know, our field has a long way to go in potentially, you know, helping. Maybe I, I personally am thinking that it might be wise to divide our field a little bit medical speech pathologists, um, just so we can focus more on our education, on overall medicine, on body systems, Um, you know, because our field is so diverse. And I can't walk into a school. I can't, 
I could not sit at an IEP meeting right now. I would have no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, vice versa. I think we kind of need to, to specialize more in the, the practitioners, practitioners who are working with dysplasia. Yeah, I feel like grad school, fine, leave it. Leave it as a generalist. But then there's a doctorate program. If you're going to go into medicine, um, you need that track. You need more training. You need more education. And you need more in-depth preparation before you're set loose on the world. Like, right. There Absolutely. isn't so much you can actually learn on the job. Like it, and I don't, the other problem with learning on the job is we do things differently across the country, uh, across town, you know, and so let's bring more standardization into that. And the best way to do that is with a continuing like structured education setting that like has rules and regulations rather than like you, this hospital versus that hospital and how they choose to practice. Right. Absolutely. And there's even variation between clinicians in the same facility, huge variation. So yeah, I mean, I would like to, you know, be a part of helping standardize our practice and our care through providing continuing education resources like this um, to, you know, help clinicians kind of get on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, girl. Okay, here we go. All right. So let's see. Kelsey, what are the pieces of good dysphagia documentation? And once you kind of answer that question, before I forget, this is my follow-up. <laughs> so put it out there now. What needs to be there that isn't there? And then maybe what's in our documentation now that really isn't relevant, that maybe we should toss out in favor of what we should put there? Right. That's a good question. So our documentation, I mean, I'm just going to speak really broadly because then we're going to dive into the components of documentation for each type of exam we're completing. But very broadly speaking, our documentation needs to include the patient's personal goals and values. Um, if a patient's goal is for comfort measures, we should not be prescribing an exercise regimen that's overly burdensome or diet recommendations that don't bring comfort, for example. And we need to be documenting and including the patient's rehabilitation potential. So we need to understand those things well. If the patient has a strength or skill-based deficit that might respond well to behavioral swallow therapy, then we can document the need for that therapy. Now, if a patient's unlikely to benefit from exercise-based therapy, like they need a medical or surgical intervention first or instead, then we also need to document that. Um, and then we need to just consider the whole picture of our patient, not just their dysphagia. So we should be talking about our patient's dysphagia in the context of their medical conditions as a whole and with consideration of their personal values. So just broadly speaking. Oh, and then your follow-up question was... Okay. Before we get there, though, I, do, I have a question. Um, I think I personally struggle with determining a person's rehab potential, especially on the acute floor because like they're in an, they're experiencing an acute change. And so they're not like their typical selves. And so I wonder like three days from now, they might present as a totally different person. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you judge the rehab potential of somebody like when they're literally at their worst? Well, so we need to have a really good understanding of the patient's chronic and acute medical conditions that are underlying their patient's dysphagia. So I know for a fact that if my patient has a, a chronic structural defect, that no amount of time or rest or, you know, perkiness will change that. So the rehabilitation potential might be guarded or poor until there's surgical intervention. Versus, I also know that a patient who's in acute care, who's encephalopathic, is prone to having some ups and downs, and that their recovery might very well be good pending the resolution of their underlying medical conditions. So we just need to really carefully, and we'll, we're going to dive really deep into this, but when we do a chart review, to really understand what are the underlying chronic and acute conditions that could be causing my patient's dysphagia, and then kind of go from there in terms of prognostic statements. 
Excellent. And then I have another follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. here to follow up all day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You also mentioned um, what are the patient's values and making sure that what we're recommending is in line with that. And for example, not giving them like a crazy amount of exercises that they're not going to do. So how do you determine that? Do you just straight up ask them pref- their preferences? How do you gauge what their values are and what their likelihood is to participate in a rehabilitative program? Right. Well, I mean, we certainly ask the patient. We also use kind of a motivational interviewing style where we try to encourage, we say, what, what's important to you? What's your goal? And they might say, well, I want to eat. We say, okay, well, I think I could help you to eat more safely and more efficiently by doing this therapy program. Would this be reasonable to you if this could help you meet your goal? Kind of that, that type of style of interviewing. And now realize that in the acute care setting, most of my patients cannot participate in that conversation. So frequently that's happening with the patient's caregiver, or if the patient's completely attended and they don't have a caregiver, that conversation is deferred until their mental status improves. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how we are incorporating their goals and values. Okay. Awesome. That's all the follow-ups I had <laughs> now <laughs> for the keep first dump in our current documentation. Like what should we keep? What do we need to discard as irrelevant or not helpful? Mm-hmm. I think we need to keep the dysphagia diagnosis that we, that we ourselves diagnose only from an instrumental swallow exam. We need to keep diet recommendations, in my opinion. And I know that there are actually professionals out there, our SLP colleagues who say we shouldn't be giving diet recommendations and that we're you know, not the diet police. I do think that we have a role to play in making reasonable, safe recommendations for diets that might provide both the most safety and efficiency for patients swallowing. So I do think that we keep those things. I think that what we dump is in our assessment, when you're writing your soap note and you're writing the A, I think we dump how many coughs and how many throat clears your patient had. I think we dump that. I don't think that's relevant. Maybe that's up in your O and your data. Um, but I think that there's so much in the, in the A that's being put there where that people aren't understanding that that's not an assessment. Um, so yeah, coughs and throat clear statements. I think those can go. <laughs> All right. Very good. Okay. Did you have anything else to add? Um, to that before we go to our next topic? Well, I mean, just one more time to reiterate, why are we talking about diet um, documentation? What is the importance of this? Well, there's, it's so important that we're communicating clearly that this is our method of handoff communication between providers, um, that this is serves as the patient's permanent record of their medical morbidities. Um, if we're really accurate with our documentation, we can accurately track their progress or decline over time in our patient's response to interventions. Um, And then on top of it, I think it organizes my own care when I'm clear in my documentation. Um, And then I think in some settings, not really in acute care, but it's very important for billing and reimbursement. Um, And so we're going to kind of dive into how to write good documentation, but we can't do that without also touching on what you should be doing during your evaluations and your treatments. Because if you don't do the right things in your evaluation, like if you do your clinical swallow evaluation and you forgot to evaluate the cranial nerves and you forgot to evaluate their laryngeal function, then your documentation might be garbage. So we also need to touch on that. Yes. Yeah, that reminds me of that last write-up that I saw that you posted on Instagram where um, there was no oral mech exam. There was a cranial nerve exam and laryngeal findings. And so within that was a was a much more in-depth assessment of a shallow assessment of what an oral mech exam is. To me, the oral mech is a very shallow visual exam, whereas your cranial nerve exam and your laryngeal findings made the connections between motor sensory um oh gosh and what was the other one just function but yeah and oh neurological findings so like it, it made that cir- circular connection where i feel like like what i do currently is just doing the regular oral mech it's just a visual thing that anybody can see and report that maybe isn't very skilled then 
Right. I mean, what is an oral mech if it's not a cranial nerve exam? It's just saying, are there lips? Check. Is there a tongue? Check. Are there teeth? Maybe not, you know, but um, I mean, those that kind of information is important if there is something structurally different. Um, but definitely, definitely, we need to be assessing cranial nerve function. That is where our skill comes in. Right. Yeah. And I think that was like maybe kind of presented at the very beginning, but it was never tied together that if you see this deficit here, then that means that's an issue with XYZ cranial nerve. And so that's what I'm struggling to like backtrack and do now is tying that together. And so the examples that you provide online, like help me see how to do that. And then to me, most importantly, how to word it. Cause I'm the most like awkwardly worded person <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> so seeing examples of that helps me know the phrasing that I need to acquire to make it clear what I'm doing and what those connections are. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that so much of what we are told in graduate school is don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And I'm just waiting for someone to show me, okay, what do I do? Can somebody present me with like the most perfect report that's ever been written? Can I see that? Can I model after it? And I felt like I just went many years in a career without seeing it. I was like, where, where is it? Where is this? I know what I in theory, I'm supposed to do, and I know what I'm not supposed to do, but no one is willing to put their report out there to be like, here it is, model this. Um, and I, you know, I think I can understand that people are, can be critical and it can be nerve wracking to put your stuff out there. You don't know what people are going to say, you know, like, oh, that's not perfect. That's not up to date, you know? So it's, it's nerve wracking to put that out there, but I think it's important and that's why I do it. I like to provide a lot of examples for people because I personally learn best by example. Yes. And that's not to say that we want to provide a boilerplate and it's like, here, just copy this because there's, there's a, there's a framework that needs to be in place. And that's what we're talking about is having a framework. Then when you go in and you're assessing the patient, that's where you're using all your critical thinking skills. And then you are taking what you have assessed and critically thought about and plugging that in into a coherent, cohesive, condensed version that is applicable to you, your colleagues, and other disciplines in the hospital. So Exactly, exactly. We just need a framework. It's not like, yeah, I mean, if at any point we get to a place where there's a sample report where words can just be exchanged, then we've lost we've lost our profession. You know, um, what I'm talking about, like you said, is just, you know, a framework, a model, like here's something to go off of, but you need to use your brain and think critically about your patient. <laughs> but we still highly encourage everyone to use the brains. <laughs> yeah, the moral of the story here. You heard it here first. <laughs> Kelsey and Leanne want you to use your brains. Yeah. All right. Cool, cool. All right, so. Um, all right. Well, I think we've covered all those questions. So we're ready for your um, case study where you're going to guide us through your clinical swallow study and then your instrumentals um, during your whole assessment with a patient and to illustrate the documentation styles. And like you mentioned before, um, what you're doing, because you have to be doing the things that you need to document about. So, right. Right. Kelsey. Absolutely. Okay. So we're just going to start with I think first what I'll do, we're going to talk about clinical swallow evaluations, fees, video swallows, and dysphagia therapy reports. So I think first for each of them, I just want to go through what are the basic elements that need to be included in each one. And then after that, I'll give you just an example case um, in what I wrote specifically. So we'll start with the elements of a clinical swallow evaluation report. So the very first thing you need to be doing, and in my opinion, the most important thing you need to be doing is the medical record review. And you should be a detective at this point. This should be the most thorough review you've ever done in your entire life for every single patient. So when you're reviewing a chart, you should be taking notes. So I noticed that when I train new SLP, like graduate students or CFs or clinicians, they'll spend 20 minutes reviewing a chart. And then at the end of it, I say, great, tell me the patient's precipitating dysphagia risk factors. And they just stare at me blankly because they didn't organize, they didn't take notes and they didn't organize their thoughts well when they were reviewing the chart. So 
Um, if you're going to make a whole picture recommendation, you have to start with a whole picture understanding of the patient. Um, so that means when you review the chart, thinking critically, which of these, what, which of this pieces of information are chronic, what are acute, what could be contributing to my patient's symptoms. So when you're taking notes on your medical record review, you should be dividing the information that you find relevant into the following categories. So predisposing dysphagia risk factors, um, the clinical signs of possible chronic dysphagia, and then precipitating dysphagia risk factors. So to kind of go back through that, predisposing dysphagia risk factors, those are chronic conditions that put your patient at risk for potential chronic dysphagia. This would be your stroke history, history of TBI, myasthenia gravis, ALS, COPD, um, a head and neck cancer, radiation therapy, all of those things that could cause chronic dysphagia, right? So I want you to, when you do your medical record review, lump all those things together when you write your notes. And then when you're meeting, reading the medical record, you might read that the patient's been losing a lot of weight here. And then over here in the documentation, it says that they've also had recurrent pneumonias. You're going to take all that information together and combine this under the clinical signs of possible chronic dysphagia. So patients with recurrent pneumonias in gravity-dependent lung zones, patients with unintentional weight loss, or with self-restriction or modification of their diet, those could all be clinical signs of chronic dysphagia. And then you're also going to be reviewing the chart, especially in acute care, for precipitating dysphagia risk factors. So what things that have happened recently to the patient, this hospitalization, or what things are brand new that are precipitating maybe a new dysphagia or an acute exacerbation of chronic dysphagia. So here I'm talking about your acute stroke, um, respiratory failure that required endotracheal intubation, um, sepsis and critical illness myopathy, tachypnea, even just patients who are working harder to breathe, their respiratory rate itself could be a precipitating dysphagia risk factor. The medications that they're on, the high flow nasal cannula, so there's so many different things. Um, so I think that's the most important piece that you're you know, when you're reviewing this, that you're writing it all down and that you're dividing in, in this information into these three categories because it's going to serve you later. And then, so once you've done your really thorough, the best chart review of your whole life, you are going to interview the patient. So when I interview a patient, I like to start with asking an open-ended question first. Do you have trouble swallowing? And can you tell me about it? Right, just something really open-ended to get as much information as you can. And then from there, you might want to follow up with closed or yes-no questions to kind of confirm because sometimes the information we receive from patients can be inconsistent or unclear. Um, so sometimes I follow up with, and have you lost weight unintentionally? And do you frequently cough or choke during meals? Does it feel difficult or more difficult than a normal person? for food or liquid to pass down? And does it feel stuck in your throat ever? So those kind of more specific questions just to follow up. Because sometimes I'll ask a patient, like, I don't know about you, but I'll be like, hey, do you have any problems swallowing? They'll go, no, I eat great. And then you say, does food ever feel stuck in your throat? They go, oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like, I think that maybe patients don't think about it the same way that we do until you ask really specific questions. So you definitely want to do a thorough patient interview and follow up. And then many of our acute care patients cannot participate in this interview. So then we might direct our questions to the patient's caregiver if they're available. Um, and then for, moving on from there, so you've done your medical record review, you've interviewed your patient or their caregiver, and then you're going to, I guess, just look at some subjective information. So what's the patient's level of alertness in your opinion? Um, what is the patient's work of breathing? at the time of your exam? What's their pain? That could impact your findings. And what are their cognitive communication skills for participating in your exam? And then you're going to do a cranial nerve exam. And I always, for a dysphagia evaluation, am going to be evaluating cranial nerves 5, 7, 9, 10, and 12. You should have those memorized. Those should be your best friends, 5, 7, 9, 10, 12. Okay, um, you're also going to look at the oral structure 
but you know, typically it'll just be present. <laughs> um, and then you're going to do a laryngeal function exam. So when I say that, you know, this isn't something that I really find written about much, but when I say that, obviously we're not looking directly at the larynx, but there's a lot of information that we can infer at bedside about laryngeal function by making a statement on the patient's secretion management. So is their vocal, are, are they dry or they, do they have congested wet upper airway sounds? Are they coughing and throat clearing just on their secretions? Are they drooling? Are they bringing up mucus? So those things. Um, comment on their patient's vocal quality, on their maximum phonation time, on their S to Z ratio, so all those things that we learned in grad school voice class, maybe. Um, comment on their pitch range and on their cough. And so for me, if my patient's cough is perceptually weak and I can already identify that this patient is going to be on my caseload, they are going to need my service, then at that point, I'll bring out like a peak flow meter or an expiratory pressure device because I'll know we'll need to be using this in therapy anyways. So I'll get an actual objective measure too on their cough strength either in the liters, the flow rate in liters per minute or the maximum expiratory pressure in the centimeters of water pressure. Um, so we can kind of get all of that information in our laryngeal function exam. And yeah. Okay. So I had a quick question about your S to Z ratio. Um, what is that telling us about their laryngeal function for swallowing? Because I, I know, yeah, we use that in like maybe voice assessments. So what's the translation into your clinical swallow? Like what, what is that adding to your report and to your overall picture of their laryngeal function skills abilities for swallowing? Yeah. So we know that like the, the norm would be about le less than 1.4, right? And so when a patient has a really high S to Z ratio, that could be a sign of vocal fold dysfunction. And so a lot of times my pa I'm doing this assessment for a patient post-extubation or post-surgery like ACDF or post-cardiac surgery. So that could give me a hint that there could have been an intraoperative or post-operative complication um, that could be causing them some vocal fold dysfunction. And we know how important vocal fold function, laryngeal function is in airway protection during the swallow. Okay. So if that number, if your SC ratio is in that higher range where you're considering some um, vocal fold issues there, is that then kind of triggering the next step to be like, I think... If, if overall, this, I believe this person needs imaging to continue this assessment, that would be more towards fees before a video swallow study? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great. That's exactly kind of my thinking. If I'm, you know, when we determine video swallow versus fees or both, um, in which one first, we're kind of looking at what's more probable, what are the probable underlying etiologies, and how could it be best assessed? And if I'm thinking that probably my patient has laryngeal dysfunction, either from extubation or from a surgery, then the best exam might be fees, at least first to assess laryngeal function directly. Okay, cool. Yay. All right. Well, let me let you continue. You left off talking about um, assessing their cough and then um, getting objective data if you feel like you need that too in the future. So Yeah. So we, you know, we're talking about what we're doing in the room with the patient. So we did cranial nerve exam. We did the laryngeal function exam. Um, and then I go into PO trials. And so when I give PO trials, I'm personally administering only as many as necessary to gather the information I need on the patient's likelihood of dysphagia. If I give two sips of water to a critically ill patient, and I know this patient needs imaging, I might stop there. I think that there's very little to be gained from bedside PO trials when you identify a patient needs imaging, right? There's so little to be gained and potential risk, especially for, you know, the patient populations I'm working with, like mechanically ventilated ICU patients. Um, what is the benefit of giving them three graham crackers at the bedside? if I just know that they need an instrumental, right? So I'm administering the PO trials necessary to determine the need for, an in, for instrumentation. Really, that's my goal of a clinical swallow exam. I just wanna make sure that if I put something in my patient's mouth, they have some semblance of a swallow response, that they're awake enough to even be aware of the bolus in their mouth. And that I think 
I see what looks like maybe a swallow because that's about all we know at bedside, right? Like, I think that was a swallow. Um, and we just kind of are looking for, is this patient in overt distress with maybe a single ice chip? Then maybe we can wait a day or two for their instrumental. Um, and then I do sometimes include like a three ounce water test in those patients who are doing really well, have very low risk for dysphagia. So I yeah. those are my PO trials. What's that? That three ounce um, water test that you do, that is just to weed out um, silent aspirators who appear to be performing well at bedside. And you just want to like check all your boxes and make sure that they're not going to need follow-up or imaging and that they're good for a diet. Right. Absolutely. Like I'm not going into my critically ill patient where I know they need an instrumental and being like, and just finally chug this water. Like absolutely not. Um, what I might do though is for a patient who, you know, had an acute stroke, let's say it's in the, the occipital lobe, there's very low probability of this patient having an oropharyngeal dysphagia, their cranial nerves look intact, their voice sounds good, um, they don't show any signs of aspiration with any oral trials, they deny any deficits, I might also complete a three-ounce water test just to identify potential silent aspiration events. Um, but, you know, we know that nothing's Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. Okay. Yeah. So then from there, so that's kind of everything that we're doing at the bedside. And then what we're doing, we're going back and we're writing a report. So we, you're documenting in you, you you're documenting in your report, the subjective um, statement. So we talked about that. How is, how's your patient looking? The objective data. So all this information we just talked about, you're going to document that. And then the most important piece of our report is the A the assessment. So here we're going to include the presence and absence, presence or absence of clinical signs of acute or chronic dysphagia. Um, We're going to include the presence or absence of historical or acute precipitating dysphagia risk factors. We're going to include the indications for instrumentation and rationale for fees versus video versus both. And then we're going to include a statement of the patient's personal risk factors for developing a dysphagia-related pulmonary complication. So we're going to consider the patient's oral hygiene, their immune function, their physical mobility, and their cough strength um, to make a presumption about the safety to continue an oral diet prior to the instrumentation. So this is what I like to do. So if my patient's coming in with chronic dysphagia signs, but their chest x-ray is is clear or they're breathing comfortably on room air, then this patient might very well be safe, we'll say safe in quotations, to continue an oral diet before instrumentation versus my patient with acute dysphagia risk factors who's critically ill, whose lungs are full of pneumonia. This patient might not be, quote, safe to eat before instrumentation. So that's kind of how I'm what I'm including in my assessment and how I'm lumping it all together. And then when I write my recommendations, I, I prefer to number them. I just like a list that's very organized and clear for the reader. And number one is the instrumentation that's needed. Video, fees, both. Um, number two is my diet recommendation for that patient until their instrumentation. Number three are strategies to reduce the risk for a dysphagia-related pulmonary complication. So that might be like increasing oral hygiene, suctioning the patient's secretions, increasing physical mobility, those things. Um, Number four, I'm going to list any referrals for specialists like ENT, GI, neurology, um, dietitian, anything that I clearly know the patient needs just at the bedside. And then I'll, number five, I'll do treatment recommendations if I know them, but typically it's pending results of instrumentation. And then number six, continuing care recommendations. So like follow up with outpatient SLT. So that might also be pending results of instrumentation. So yeah, that's a, that was a mouthful. That was a lot. But that's everything, you know, all the components that go into a clinical swallow evaluation. So you want me to give a little example? Yes. And then I also just want to interject, like, I really love how structured your recommendations are that they're numbered one through six. So there's a home for everything and it stays kind of in that same, um, I don't know, like order. So then the people that you're working with the most who are reading it, your doctors and your nurses and your colleagues, um, 
get that expectation. And then they're like, boom, boom, boom. Here's all the things. It's a really nice summary. I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that the way that I, I try to be very systematic in the way that I write my notes so that my colleagues know exactly what to expect from me. They know I will deliver this information and they know exactly where to find it. Um, yeah. So an example for you um, of a clinical swallow evaluation I completed. So I did my medical record review and I found an 80 something year old male who was admitted with chest pain, dyspnea and dysphagia. And then he also had a history of a right-sided thyroid tumor that extended to the mediastinum. So then I interviewed the patient and he endorsed chronic and progressive dysphagia to both solids and liquids, but solids more than liquids. He also was aware and endorsed his history of the right-sided neck and mediastinal mass, which he said was non-cancerous. And he also states he undergoes routine swallow studies as an outpatient every one to two years. And then he stated to me that his dysphagia worsened over the past several weeks, and he feels he's having more difficulty since his most recent swallow study. And then I looked at my patient and included my subjective information. So I saw that the patient's fully alert. He's following all of my commands. He's motivated. He participates well, and he appears to be a very reliable historian. And then I'm going back through that medical record review. I'm going to write down the predisposing dysphagia risk factors for my patient. So for him, just that right thyroid and mediastinal tumor. And then the clinical signs of possible chronic dysphagia. Well, the patient endorses chronic dysphagia symptoms, um, but he denies a history of pneumonia or weight loss and says that he has always been recommended to continue a regular diet. And then the precipitating dysphagia risk factors for this patient, none known. He just said that it's been kind of progressive over the last few weeks. And then I do my cranial nerve exam. Five is intact bilaterally, seven intact bilaterally, nine and 10. Um, Well, they appear grossly intact, except that I can't exclude like a vagus branch involvement because he has significant dysphonia, but his palate is elevating well. Um, and then I, and then 12 is intact bilaterally. So then I did a laryngeal function exam. His secretion management was adequate. His vocal quality was severely hoarse and harsh and strained. His maximum phonation time was only three seconds. His S to Z ratio was 1.9. Yeah, so there are some signs of very significant vocal fold dysfunction there. And then his pitch range was perceptually reduced for his age and sex. And then his cough was perceptually weak. Um, so then I gave him some PO trials and I gave him thin liquid and puree and then stopped there. And I said, absolutely, this patient needs instrumentation. Um, but he felt comfortable. He was not in distress and said that he could tolerate those two textures well and that he worried most about regular solids. So then when I wrote my report in my assessment, this is what I wrote. <laughs> I said, Clinical signs of pharyngoesophageal dysphagia, presumably related to thyroid and mediastinal mass, with suspected recurrent laryngeal nerve involvement given comorbid severe dysphonia. Suspect possible extrinsic compression of the pharynx and or esophagus by large neck and mediastinal mass. Instrumental swallow study is indicated to evaluate swallow physiology. However, given patients currently stable respiratory status and clear lungs in the context of the aforementioned chronic conditions, the patient does appear safe to continue a modified oral diet until swallow study results. So that's my whole assessment. So I said that my patient has signs of dysphagia, what I think it's related to, and I justified the indication for my instrumentation and why I think it's safe for this patient to continue eating until we get those results. So then my recommendations, I numbered them out. So number one was fees to evaluate laryngeal function as it relates to swallowing. Number two was video swallow study to evaluate possible extrinsic compression of the pharynx and or cervical esophagus. Um, And three was my diet recommendation for this patient. So puree diet with thin liquids until the fees results. And then number four, I had oral hygiene every four hours um, just to reduce his risk for a pulmonary complication related to dysphagia. 
And then number five, I said treatment recommendations are pending instrumental swallow study results. That's my case. That was excellent. So organized. Like that's <laughs> one of the million love languages that I have. So just <laughs> organization. All kind of love into my brain. Like I just adore organization. And that's what really drew me to your documentation style to begin with, is it was just super clear. Like I could, without knowing your structure, I could see that one thing led to the other, that you were assessing the whole picture and taking the whole patient's course into consideration of why he has dysphagia, what we can do about it, and then like what some outcomes might be. I feel like that also makes it super clear. Like you don't have to prove a case for um, imaging, like it's abundantly clear that that's clearly the next step. Like, <laughs> right. And it's, you know what? I have to say that when I started out as a CF and I was writing my reports in the style I was trained to do cough, cough here, throat clear there, I would have to fight for a video swallow. Like, I felt like doctors just could not understand why I needed the imaging I needed. And I was like, why isn't this working? I don't understand. I was told this is what I'm supposed to do and this is what's supposed to happen, but everyone's fighting me all the time. And then when I started writing this way, I have to tell you, I've never gotten any pushback on an instrumental. They say, absolutely, immediately, you do what you need to do. And they let me do video swallow and feast on the same day on the same patient. They'll give me as many orders as I want very, very clear why the patient needs it. Yeah. And it's, you know, we always talk about skilled documentation, skilled intervention, skilled assessment, and your documentation reflects all of those things that you are providing skilled assessment, treatment, like everything, like you're bringing it all. You're not just walking in and making observations and reporting observations. Like mm -hmm. that's what I feel like I've been doing these past seven years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've all done it. We've all done it. Yeah. So time to change, time to step it up. And then even when I do like make changes to my practice, I'm struggling with figuring out how to bring my documentation up to speed, how to reflect those changes that are now skilled. You know? Right. <laughs> I need to learn skilled document like language. And it is, it's a whole new language in my mind that you pick up. Well, let me talk about me. I pick up very slowly. Yeah. All right. <laughs> So Kelsey, quick question. We are 45 minutes in. So this is usually the point where we have to wrap up and we are just scratching the surface. We haven't even gotten into mm -hmm. like the video and fees and treatment. So what are your thoughts? Like, should we make that part two? Do you think you can like cover that the way you want to and like five minutes? <laughs> I don't think I can cover the rest in five minutes. Can we, are, are you okay with a part two? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause I would love to do this justice. Like I am loving this. I'm, oh my gosh, you should see the notes I'm taking. <laughs> yeah. So I think if we could do a part two, that would be awesome. Okay, good. All right. So, um, I'll have to pick up the pace. <laughs> No, don't pick up the page. This is so good. It is so thorough. Like this is really like helping me so much. <laughs> All right. Um, well, earlier when we were talking before we sat down to do this episode, um, you were talking about how you're creating like an entire day's worth of continuing education, like seminar, conference, workshop on this topic on skilled documentation of dysphagia evaluation and treatment. So do you want to talk a little bit more about like what that looks like when it may be coming along? Like yeah, absolutely. So I am working on the course content right now. And I mean, the reason I'm developing this course is I just don't think there's anything at least in my opinion, for my needs sufficient out there to teach me how to do this. So I was like, you know what, I guess I'll teach people how to do this. Um, so yeah, I've been working on this course, it's going to be hopefully a live conference style eight hour continuing education course with like a hands on writing workshop. Um, and my goal is to have people just walk away with a new structure to their writing that they can start using the next day and be just like so much better prepared for their report writing. 
Um, and I'm going to be providing over 100 report examples of clinical swallow evaluations, video swallows, fees, all of that. Um, so people can walk away, you know, with like a flash drive full organized by category of like all of the different reports that they might want to reference for examples. Um, so that's what I'm working on. And I'm going to be producing this course in partnership with Teresa Richards, Mobile Dysphagia Diagnostics. And the goal is for it to be out in early August, but you are well aware of the current public health pandemic happening right now with COVID-19. So I will be monitoring that closely and you know, deciding on the most appropriate course format when that comes. So my goal is August. My goal is a live conference style course in Los Angeles, um, but I will have to keep everyone updated as this pandemic continues. Yes, that would be so helpful. And that's, I like how you mentioned like in your course offering, like it's, it's hands-on, it's going to be a writing workshop. Like don't expect to just arrive and then sit back and listen and receive like it's participatory. You're going to practice and learn the skills that then you would take out and go use the next day in your practice. Like that is gold to me. That is yeah. what I need and want from an, from an offering. So exciting. Excellent. I really hope that people are able to attend and they can enjoy it. So thank you. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Kelsey, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 